Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Stick your hand in the air if you're someone who made New Year's resolutions this year. Okay, there are not many people, I did, I made a couple of New Year's resolutions, one was to do with exercise, one was to do with digital uh, usage, Um, so let me ask it the other way, stick your hands in the air if you made zero New Year's resolutions, I am impressed, Andy, did you know that CCM Heatons was so sorted, that that people had everything in their lives completely together, it's an impressive thing isn't it? Anyone a bit snobby about New Year's resolutions? Anyone do the well? When I want to change something in my life, I just do it. I don't wait till January. Yeah, a few people like that. And it is a good moment to take stock, isn't it? It's a good moment to reflect on life, where we're at, where we're going, what we want to see happen. And over the last year or two, a question that I've started asking at the start of each new year isn't just what do I want to do differently, but it's to imagine... What do you think Jesus wants this year to be for me? And to reflect on that, what's his perspective? What do you think Jesus wants this year to be for you? And when I think about that question, and then I think about the resolutions that I made, I'm not quite sure I've hit the bullseye. You see, Jesus probably would look at them. I don't think he'd say they're bad. I don't think he'd say there's anything wrong with doing a bit of exercise. I don't think you'd say there's anything wrong with changing my digital use, but I'm not sure it's the heart of what he'd say. Tom, 2023, here is my vision for you. There's a book in the Bible that recently I've been drawn to over the last few months. I've been living with it. I've been reading it loads. I've been immersed in it. And it's a book that we don't talk about a lot and a book that we don't read a lot. And it's in the middle of your Bible. It's called Song of Songs. And it's, it's a brilliant book. It's a book, eight chapters long. And these eight chapters are romantic poetry between two characters, the, the groom and the bride, or the lover and the beloved, you'd call them. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, this has been understood to be a book about Jesus and the church. It's an allegory. It's a picture of the love that Jesus has for us and the love that he calls us to have for him. And I've just been loving reading it and seeing it through that lens. A few verses just to give you a flavour of it. Chapter 2, verse 10. This is Jesus speaking to us. He says, arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. It's an invitation to closeness. Or chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Just hear Jesus saying these words to you. You've ravished my heart. My sister, my bride, you've ravished my heart with a glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How sweet is your love, my sister, my bride. Is that the way you think about it when you imagine what Jesus would have to say to you? Or chapter 7, verse 10, this is the bride speaking now. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. When I think about 2023... And what Jesus might want for me this year, maybe it's this. Maybe his desire is for me. Maybe it's come away with me, my love. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's a little bit of raw intimacy, a bit of passion, a bit of desire 
Maybe it's the love of my heart that he's seeking. Maybe it's less, well, did you complete your Bible in a year last year? And maybe it's a little bit more, did you let the word stoke your affections for the lover of your soul? Maybe it's a little bit less. Did I get all the way down my prayer list this morning? Did I pray about every point that I'd written down? And maybe it's more, did I draw near? Did I meet with him? Did I experience him? Was I transformed by his love? Maybe it's like that giddy feeling you get when you like someone. You know that nervous excitement when you've sent them a message and you're waiting to see if they're going to text you back and you get those little ticks, don't you? Like, oh, they've read it, they've read it, they've not replied, what's going on here? And then when you see, oh, such and such is typing, it's like, wow. Um, Maybe it's when you can't help dropping their names into conversation. You know that, uh, say, as you're talking with someone, you've brought up that person like, five times in the last three minutes. There's something, isn't there? There's something in your heart there. Maybe it's that eagerness to be around them. I remember when I was first getting to know Emma, we were part of a church together and and she ran the set up and pack down teams at this church. Guess who volunteered to be on the set up and pack down teams? Uh, 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 It was me. Uh, And Emma's role there, um, she, there'd be this store cupboard and she'd be like arranging everything in the correct places. Guess who kept gravitating to help with the store cupboard? Because you're drawn, aren't you? There's something about it. Maybe it's that. Maybe when Jesus is thinking about this year for us, maybe it's that kind of thing. Charlie Cleverly said, this is the one thing needful, the one priority that matters in this transitory life. Our love relationship, we might even say love affair, with the God of love. It explores an end to alienation and offers an answer to the existential ache and yearning for connection in the heart of humankind. Or Priscilla Shearer says the same thing uh, in different words. She says, the vacuum in our hearts can only be occupied by the one thing for which it was created. Relationship and intimacy with God. Now, I'm not going to preach on Song of Songs this morning. I'm going to go in the New Testament. I'm going to read three little passages from the Gospels which show this love for Jesus in action. I will just reflect on them a little bit. So, the first one's found in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 38. And this is just kind of showing what it is that I'm talking about. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city, who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Our next passage, I'm going to read John 12, verses 1 to 3. Another example of the same idea. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. 
It says costly. I've got a footnote in my Bible that says that perfume would have cost about a year's worth of wages. It's a lot of money on perfume. And then the last one, this is just one verse. So we read it from the New King James because it just brings it out slightly uh, in more detail what was going on there. John 13, 23. Now there was leaning on Jesus's bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. And that phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, who wrote the gospel, he'd often talk about himself using that phrase. He never named himself. That was his little code name. It was me. I had my head on Jesus's bosom. Think about those three stories. What do they have in common? What strikes you as you hear those things read? A couple of things that come to my mind. The first one is this. They probably all raised a few eyebrows. Maybe they were seen as a bit improper. Maybe they were seen as a bit awkward in the context of the event that was going on. Like the first one, there's a bit of propriety you'd expect. It was, it was a formal event. It was a dinner at a respected guy's house. There were ways you did things. There were ways you trap people. I've worked as a waiter at some really formal events. Everyone dressed up in a certain way, like black tie. There's a seating plan. You've got to stay in seat. You pass the port to the left. There's all these kind of rules and etiquette. And, and you can just imagine if somebody comes in who has no care for that at all. Well, that was this woman. She turned up. She wasn't invited. She crashed the party. And she was there. And Jesus' feet were dirty. Now, that's because the host had been a bad host. He was meant to offer water for Jesus to wash his feet. Hadn't done that. And the way they would arrange themselves, it wasn't like chairs around a table. It was these sofas and you'd recline sideways. You'd like use your left hand to support your weight. You'd be lying out. You'd use your right hand to take the food. So people would be lined up side by side, which would mean his feet were sticking out on the outside of the table. She comes in and she says, I'm going to deal with this problem. With her tears, she cleans his feet. With her hair, would have been expected to be covered. It wasn't covered. She got her hair out and she dried his feet in a she would have got funny looks. People would have made comments. They would have judged her for what she did. Raised eyebrows. That, that second story about that expensive perfume, I think the cost of that would have raised a few eyebrows. Do you remember that thing during the World Cup where Joe Lysett shredded like £10,000? There was uproar. That money could have been put to much better use than what you did. Or spending a year's worth of wages on perfume and then just pouring it out. That's going to get comments right. And then John resting his head on Jesus' chest. I'm thinking, right, if I, if I was at the pub with a few of the guys and someone just rested their head on my chest, but what are you doing, mate? What is going on here? This is weird. This is awkward. In Britain, we've got this thing about personal space, right? We don't want to get too close to one another. In fact, we even do this, right? I bet you do this. You get on a bus and you're calculating, right, which seat is the furthest distance from everyone. If I sit there, well, I'm two seats from that person and five from that one. I'm, I'm definitely in their personal space. I need to be equidistant between everyone so we've all got enough room. John didn't care about that as he got close to Jesus. They were all weird. They were all surprising but when we get under the bonnet of all three when we ask what was really going on in these stories what we see is a response to Jesus that goes way beyond membership of a program 
It's not just they've signed their names up to a thing and they're on a mailing list. It's not just that they're saying, okay, I'm affiliated to you, Jesus. I, I, I will tick the right box on a census. It's more than obedience. It's more than just, I will do what you say. And it's more than just commitment. It's love. And not in an abstract sense, in, in the wild, intimate, passionate, I've got to draw close to you. I've got to give you everything. What we see in these stories is the same thing that the poetry of the Song of Songs points us to. Now, these stories, they're not romantic stories at all, but they are stories about intimacy and stories about desire. And the place where all of that is to be channeled is Jesus. And these stories give us a taste of what that's like. So what does Jesus want from us in 2023? I think he might want to draw a bit of this out of our hearts. It seems like the way they're responding to Jesus, he, he's absolutely down with that. When people start quibbling and asking questions, he sticks up for these people. It seems like their responses delight him much more than the sombre, serious religion of the Pharisees did. Which might challenge us to reflect a little bit on which of the two we see most closely resembling our life and our response to Jesus. But let's just dig into these three a little bit more. And from each of them, I just want to draw out uh, a couple of observations. So firstly, in Luke 7, that woman who came into the dinner at Simon's house, well, they were all saying, hang on, hang on. If Jesus really was a holy man, if Jesus really was a prophet, he'd know what sort of person she was. Now, it used the word she was a sinner. It would have meant she was a sex worker in that town. And she's uh, treating Jesus the way she is. They'd be like, hang on. No, 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 Jesus can't accept this from her. She's that sort of person. Well, Jesus told a story then, which we pick up in verse 41 of Luke 7 to, to explain what was going on. He said a certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they couldn't pay, he cancelled the debts for both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, so Simon was the Pharisee hosting the dinner. He answered, well, I suppose the one for whom he cancelled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, yeah, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She's bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she's not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she's shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven, loves little. What we learn from that story is the foundation of intimacy with Jesus is how deeply you understand the grace of God. How much you understand you have been forgiven. You see, Simon, he was a bit presumptuous, wasn't he? He had Jesus round, but he didn't treat him as an honoured guest. He didn't give him the water or the kiss or the, the anointing with oil that would be expected in that culture. Today, it would be like you have someone round for dinner and you don't take their coat and you don't offer them a cup of tea. And they're sitting having dinner in their coat because you've not offered any hospitality. And it feels like a shun. That's what happened. It, 
Did, did you see over the last week or two those queues outside Aldi for, for that drink, Prime, and people were getting there at six in the morning because they were desperate to have this thing in their life that all these YouTube influencers have been um, making money off promoting this new drink. Well, there was a desperation in those people that we don't really see in Simon here. He's got Jesus round, but it's just a normal thing. I'm just having a dinner. If Jesus doesn't want to come, it's fine. I'll invite someone else. There's nothing special about this. It's, it's take it or leave it, having the presence of Jesus in his home. He's, enti- he's feeling entitled, like, okay, I, I will meet with you, Jesus, but on my terms and at no sacrifice to me. And it leads him to be cynical and to complain. And you know, this is the absolute biggest danger today for middle-class, respectable Christians. <laughs> It's huge that we we give a lip service to grace. We know the language. Oh, I'm not saved by what I do. I'm saved and forgiven because of the grace of Jesus. But we live like we're entitled to be in his presence. We live like we're entitled to just, well, turn up. He'll be there. When it's convenient for me, I'll meet with him. I'm not overly bowled over. It's just a normal thing that we do. It's not got as deep, has it? Jesus speaks in Matthew 15 about a people who honours him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. Well, that's in contrast to this woman, because she she is like that queue outside Aldi. She's absolutely desperate to get to Jesus, to pour out love and affection on him. She sees him dishonoured. She sees the way this Pharisee's treating him. She sees that his feet are still dirty when any good host would have cleaned them. And she's heartbroken and she wants to do something about it. And the only thing she's got that she can clean his feet with is the tears that she's been shedding at how he's being treated. So she uses those tears. She uses her hair to offer something of the love and affection and kindness that Simon hadn't offered. And she'd have known what it looked like. She'd have known her reputation. But there comes a point that you don't care. You just want Jesus to be honoured. Tia Kim says, in sharp contrast, here was this who and what sort of woman bending over Jesus's soiled feet, washing them with her tears and gently wiping his feet with her hair. After pouring precious ointment on his feet, her worship overflowed in reverent kisses to his feet. Here we've got an extravagant act, an act that flows from a heart that wants to honour the saviour, that's willing to bear shame, that's willing to be exposed. There's no holding back here. There's no what will people think of me if I do this. She completely poured herself out. I learned something in these last few weeks that I want to uh, just share. I think this is cool. This is like a little freebie takeaway, but I think it, it just helps us. You know, in our, our New Testaments, we often read the word worship. That's the English translation. Well, the Greek word that gets translated as worship is proskuneo. And I learned what that word is. It's a compound word that's made up of two halves. And that first bit of it, the pros bit of it, it literally means moving towards, drawing in, leaning in, you could say. And the kineo bit of the word is to kiss. So the word we have when we read worship in our New Testament, that's literally leaning in for a kiss. That's pretty cool, isn't it? When you think of it that way, it changes the way we think about it. Worship is drawing close in our heart because we want intimacy with Jesus. 
And that's what that woman was doing in this story. It's the challenge of the New Testament to us. Will we respond to Jesus like this? Will we be like the beloved in the Song of Songs? Well, let's jump on to our second little story then. This was where Mary poured the perfume, the expensive perfume, on Jesus' feet. It's an extravagant act, and it really doesn't make sense. And one of the disciples, Judas, he raises the point with her. So verse 4 of John 12. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, well, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii, the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put in it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you don't always have me. Let's just for a moment put aside the insincerity, the fact that he wanted to rob the money. Does anyone have a bit of sympathy for Judas here? Does anyone think, hang on, that's a good point. If that was worth so much money, you could have done a lot of good for the poor. I'm imagining, right, next time Give Big Sunday comes along, if someone came up to us and said, I've got this bottle of champagne, right? It's worth 20 grand. We've got two options. I can either sell it, we can give in to Give Big, all the causes we're giving to, we'll be massively blessed through it. Or we can crack the thing open and make a good night of it. What should we do? I think most of us would know deep down, even if we were tempted by the champagne, that the right answer would be, give it to the poor. It doesn't make sense what she did. Pouring out so much money just to give Jesus smelly feet. Like, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem prudent, does it? It doesn't seem wise. And then you start to reflect, well... That's how it is with love. When it comes to love, I mean, how many of us have done crazy things for love? You do things that don't make sense. The normal rules of prudence aren't what you operate on when you're passionate, when you're in love with someone. In fact, I looked at a website, right, people.com. They had this list of crazy things people have done for love. And I've just picked some of them. There was about 20 on there. Because some of them, I was like, yeah, this is getting to what we're on about. These are the kind of crazy things people would do. So one person was talking about um, how they left a high-paying job, friends and family, and moved across to the other side of the country to be within the person they loved. And I was like, yeah, that's good. I I, I get that. That's a, a big sacrifice. It's an extravagant commitment. And then another one on the list, someone uh, stopped eating meat for the person they loved. I was like, okay, yeah, that's a big deal. Like, you've done something uh, big. You made a big sacrifice there. But then as I was reading the list, I was like, maybe this isn't what I'm after after all. Because one person said, well, when I was 11, I gave a girl I liked my holographic Charizard. Uh, (coughs) Which maybe that is a big sacrifice. I I don't get that one. Um, Someone else said the biggest sacrifice they've ever made for love was paying the extra $2.50 for stuffed crust from Domino's. Um, And then the weirdest one was someone who took off their own braces with nail clippers, which is just weird, isn't it? So maybe that isn't what I'm after. But you get the point, right? When you're in love, you do things that don't always make sense. What might it look like for us to show extravagance in our intimacy with Jesus. It's probably not the things on those lists. It's probably not 
paying $2.50 for stuffed crust or giving away a Pokemon card. And it's probably not pouring out perfume as well. What might it be? Well, for some of us, maybe this is the year that we, we start to fast on a regular basis, that we say, actually, I am going to go without food some days to draw closer to Jesus spiritually. For some, it might be pushing at the door about going to an unreached nation to be a representative for Jesus there. For some, it might be financial extravagance when Give Big does come around. For some, it might be ending a relationship that you know doesn't honour him. There is no instruction manual for extravagance. That's not how love works, is it? If you're in a love relationship and you're like, right, I've got my list, right. On this date, I will send flowers. On this date, I will take them for dinner. And you're just working down a list. That's not quite the heart of it. The heart is that you express the desire you've got in your heart in ways that don't make sense. You know, often when we're teaching the Bible, right, what we do, this is just like a, a little preacher thing that I'm sure you've noticed it. We like to apply it. We like to give tips on what you can put into practice in your life to do the things we're talking about. And what we tend to do is go small and go incremental. And we think, okay, what's a little thing that doesn't seem too stretchy that people might actually do? Now, there's wisdom in that because we're all on a journey. It's a step-by-step -step thing. There are reasons we do that. It doesn't always serve us that well when all we're calling people to is the little steps. Today, our application is not small. It's not incremental. Here's the application of my preach today. Love Jesus with all of your heart. Be extravagant. Go crazy. Pour yourself out for him. Give him everything of who you are. He is so worth it. Let's jump on to our last little verse. Intimacy is shown in relationship. And this is John 13, 23. This is where there was leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Now, this would have been a similar setup to, to that dinner with the Pharisees. So they'd have been on these couches reclining. So they'd be side by side. And so John was here. Jesus was the one who was behind him. So if he wanted to talk to Jesus, he would have kind of had to lean backwards like that. Now, normally what you'd do is you'd kind of lean back and just have the chat. But obviously that strains your neck a bit. So if you want to be more comfortable, you might rest your head on their chest. It's a short little verse, but there, there are a few reasons I included it. This wasn't just a thing how it was. It wasn't a normal thing over dinner to put your head on the chest of the person next to you. In fact, so much so that John made a particular point. He kept coming back to it. In verse 23, he's like, hey, by the way, the disciple who Jesus loved, he actually put his head on Jesus's chest. And then in verse 25, he's like, by the way, I was talking to him. Yes, my head was still on his chest, just like remember that. And then a few chapters later, this is the risen Jesus talking to Peter and John. And John's reporting that conversation. And he says, then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus was following. Yes, that's the one who put his head on Jesus's chest. The fact that he kept bringing this up means that it wasn't just something that they'd all done. It wasn't like, oh yeah, they, they all did that. They did it every time they went for dinner. This was normal in that culture. He's like, this is a bit of a thing. I put my head on Jesus' chest. I want you all to know it. I'll keep talking about it over and over again. It was a special thing. 
J.D. Greer says reclining on someone's bosom at dinner would not be a thing that a guy friend would do with another guy friend. Bear that in mind if I ever invite you for dinner, guys. Um, it certainly would be a thing, though, that a son would do to his father. It's drawing him in to a level of intimacy that had moved John's heart. And in fact, it's, it's reminiscent of Jesus' own relationship with his father. In John 1, he wrote, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. It's the same language being used. So there's just three little things I want to draw out from this verse. The first one is this. Intimacy draws near. There's something in, in this intimate relationship where you draw near, where you do rest your head on Jesus' bosom. What does that look like for you? How are you drawing near to Jesus? Not just how are you functionally doing the things that you think are involved in being a Christian. How are you drawing near to Jesus? What does that look like? What's the equivalent in your life of resting your head on Jesus's chest? Second thing that I just noticed here that I think is just worth saying, and please forgive me for making this super obvious point. John is a man. Right? And I think that's important because the first two examples that I gave were of women responding to Jesus in certain ways. And I've noticed when we talk about intimacy with God, when we talk about desire for Jesus, passion, when we talk about metaphors from the Bible like the bride of Christ, that can sometimes be a block for some men to relate to Jesus in that way. We need to be comfortable with this. In the same way the Bible talks about sons of God and means men and women together, talks about the bride of Christ and means men and women together. Being close to Jesus, drawing near, that's not a non-masculine thing to do. But it can often be a particular challenge for us guys to let our defences down and lean into this. Let me encourage you, male or female, Let's go for this together. Let's draw near to him. I, I believe it's what he's calling us to do. And then thirdly, intimacy forms identity. Do you notice he keeps referring to himself as the disciple who Jesus loved? It's got in his bones so much that he won't even say his name. He's like, hi, my name is the disciple who Jesus loved. Because the love that Jesus has for him has so shaped how he thinks of himself. Now, he's not saying... Oh, by the way, Jesus didn't love any of the others. He only loved me. That's obviously not the point he's making. But the love that he's received from Jesus has so shaped his life. That's how he thinks of himself. Now, it transforms everything when you grasp the love that he has for you. I just want to read this a bit of Charles Spurgeon. He says this. Believe me, at this very moment, we have, or at least we can have, such intimate enjoyment of the love of Jesus that even if he were here and we could lean our heads upon his bosom, the endearment could not be more certain, more sweet or more ravishing to our delighted souls.